Welcome to City Life Church, and this is our podcast. This is Pastor Dave Diefendorf, and we are so honored to have you join us today. Our passion is to help you discover who God is, grow in the likeness of Jesus, and lead well in this generation. I hope in this message, God will meet you where you're at and take you to the next level in your connection with Him and His kingdom. Enjoy the message. All right. That we've got. Uh, last week, we kind of threw down a little summer faith challenge. Uh, that over the summer, uh, we, we focused on two uh, power tools that Jesus gave his disciples, and that was prayer and fasting. And so over the summer, we kind of issued a little challenge of pray every day, uh, connecting with God, relating with God, talking to him, hearing from him, uh, 15 minutes every day, and then fasting once a week, uh, fasting for something that uh, maybe something going on in your personal life, uh, needing a breakthrough in your own personal life, or maybe somebody in the life around you, uh, fasting and praying for them, uh, for their healing or their breakthrough, uh, and then also just praying for all the things that are going on around us in the world. It's really a time for us to just get close to Jesus and uh, really get His heart and get His vision of what's, uh, what's, what He's got on the docket for us. Um, so, uh, we're going to dive into a brand new series for the next three weeks, and uh, we're going to look at this Old Testament book, a smaller one, but very powerful, and it's the book of Esther. We're going to look at the book of Esther for the next three weeks. It's a dramatic yet pivotal story in the nation of Israel, and one that I think God is going to reveal some powerful truths and insights as to who God still is today. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word, and Lord, no matter where we're at with you, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word to us, and God, speak your voice and your uh, life into us, that God, we would be your people in this generation, and that God, we just thank you for all that's gone before, and we pray with our eyes forward to what you have in store for us. And so, Lord God, we thank you for this time and we give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, since we're just, this is kind of a just diving in on Esther, we kind of got to give a little background and context as to uh, where this book falls in the scope of history. Uh, long before Esther's time, the nation of Israel, uh, both uh, Israel and Judah that had been previously kind of divided up because of some unrighteous kings, uh, but both Israel and Judah had now been captured by Babylon and the Assyrians. And after that had happened, uh, the next uh, big empire to take over Babylon was Persia. And Persia is kind of the time frame that we're in. Uh, there's kind of, I think, a little timeline. Uh, the text may be a little small, uh, but there's, you know, bright colors up there, so it kind of looks nice. Um, so... Uh, uh, the uh, ruler at the time of, the, uh, of Persia, his name is Ahasuerus, or his Greek name is Xerxes. So depending on your Bible translation, some say Xerxes and some say Ahasuerus. But this was about 50 years after Daniel's ministry ended. Remember, Daniel had been brought uh, through the exile into Babylon and, and through some miraculous sovereignty of God uh, in his lifetime. 
Uh, he became a counselor to many kings of Babylon, and actually his favor lasted him even into when Persia took over Babylon. He became an advisor to the first two uh, Persian kings. So the favor of God was really on Daniel, but this was about 50 years or kind of a full generation after Daniel had left the scene. And here comes Esther. Uh, king uh, Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, uh, he was king of Persia from 486 to 464. Uh, his father was Darius the Great, and his grandfather was Cyrus the Great, very great rulers in the nation of Persia. But at this time in history, a great number of Jews were spread out all throughout now the Persian Empire, and I think there's a little map as to see kind of what the, the landscape of all of Persia that had conquered. It was the largest empire known to man up to that time, and a tremendous amount of influence. And so Esther opened some 60 years after the first return of Jewish exiles to Jerusalem and after the temple was rebuilt. And what's interesting about the book of Esther is that Esther is the only book in the Bible that does not mention the name of God. Doesn't mention the name of God even once. And it's almost as if the author writes it purposely to show us and illuminate the fact that God's sovereign hand may not be uh, actively seen in and around us, but God's hand is nonetheless guiding all of human history and bringing events together for His plan and good purpose. It's the only book, uh, it's as if, yeah, it's as if the book of Esther is designed to show God's providential care of His people. He's the God who sees, but He's also the God who exercises sovereign control over the means and the end. By His sustaining, redeeming activity of both natural and supernatural realms through history, His providence has orchestrated the unfolding of God's ultimate plan, which is bringing glory to His Son in the expansion of His kingdom. So, basically, God pulls through. But how do you describe God's sovereignty? Uh, I'm a big fan of, uh, I like Gordon Ramsay. He's kind of, uh, he's kind of uh, if, if I watch television, it's usually uh, one of his shows. So, um, but uh, there's, there's always just something, if you've ever been to a really nice restaurant, uh, there's, there's something that makes uh, any plate elevated, right? And it's the sauce. It's the sauce. you got to have the right sauce. Now, how do you make these extravagant, beautiful sauces? Well, usually back in the kitchen, it's just a blender. Uh, usually those blenders can run up to $1,000. But anyway, it's a blender nonetheless. And, and uh, they're just putting a bunch of seemingly just independent ingredients, thinking that, well, once I blend these independent ingredients and stir this up, man, the magic of the sauce is going to come through. And that's exactly what the sovereignty of God is. It's like, it's like he's taking independent events and people and how he blends it in together. He comes up with this amazing sauce of the expansion of his will and the establishment of his kingdom and the uh, coming through and pulling through of his promises time and time and generation after generation after generation. 
And so at this time, here's some of the ingredients. At this time, it seemed like God was hiding his face from his people because the account uh, of their sins. They had deliberately chosen to continue to live in the land of Persia and not go back to the land of Jerusalem. God gave a word to say, hey, come back to Jerusalem. But there were Jews that had now been spread all throughout the Near East that had now have homes, now have families. They'd been there for numerous years. And so this call by God to come back to Jerusalem was a little too hard. And so there were many people that remained kind of uh, against, kind of passively against God's will going back to Jerusalem. And so they'd grown comfortable. And so we got to see God's sovereignty. The lenses, as we read this story, see God's sovereignty. Even though his name's not mentioned, his fingerprints are on every page. Another prominent lens to have as we dive in, so kind of the second lens, um, so a little bifocal, if you wish, um, is, is to see the all importance of seeing and using God-given opportunities. God-given opportunities. Uh, the power of life and death, as we'll see, lies in these opportunities, both to ourselves and to others. And we may be tempted to think, that our opportunities are so insignificant, that our circle of influence is just too small, that, there are, that they're of little importance. If, if there were a person, if you were a person of greater influence like Esther becomes, then, then everything would be different. But let me tell you that God has a purpose for each and every one of you, and He's going to put you in the exact place that's going to yield the best fruit for Him and His kingdom and for you in your life. So God wants to take us through this journey. So let's dive in. Esther 1, we'll kind of set this up. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, man, massive amounts of real estate. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the royal throne of Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast to all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. So at least 127 plus all their entourage. Imagine this great, while he showed the cities of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. I mean, uh, in, the, in the original writing, it's, it's double. It's almost like, man, he, the royal glory and splendor? And the pomp and greatness. It's kind of like, man, any adjective that you could use uh, to describe this kind of licentious king, I mean, it's kind of like they're throwing it in. So while he showed the rich of his glory and splendor and pomp and greatness in many days, 180 days, 180 days, six months, he's given a grand tour around with feasting and parting all around his province, showing off all the stuff he owns. Then in verse 5, it says, And when these days were completed, the king gave all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Seven-day continual feast. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king has given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And Queen Vashti also gave the feast for the women in the palace that belonged 
to King Ahasuerus. So there was no restraint placed upon drinking. In other words, the king had orchestrated every wine steward in his household to serve as much as everyone wanted. So you could imagine, after seven days, you mean you're given an open bar at a reception for two hours. You know what I mean? This is a, this is a seven-day open bar party, and you have all it's everything's free, probably top shelf. King of Persia throwing this beautiful party. But Queen Vashti, it says, was having a party with the women elsewhere. We don't know if that was a cultural thing or if that was just for this particular party. We don't really know. It doesn't say. But it says, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, a.k.a. the guy was smashed, uh, another, after seven continuous days of partying, he actually requests for Queen Vashti to come before him and his grand entourage to show and demonstrate her beauty. Come, dance before us. I want to show you off to all your, I want to show all your beauty off. Basically, come out naked dancing. And here is a picture of Vashti's uh, response. Oh, hell, hell no. <laughs> no, no, that's not happening. After seven days with you and your bunch, I ain't coming near that wing of the house. The king loses it. Her refusal, you could see after all this great pomp and this great bragging of his, of his empire for six months, she denies him. The king loses it. Instead of humility as a, at this demonstration of the limit of his power, he's defla his deflated pride leads him to just, just breaking out in a rage. All the superficial fun and playfulness of the last six months, pomp and feast is abruptly brought to an end by the disobedience of his queen. This is a great humiliation as there is the king seeking to show off his power and he cannot even get his wife to obey him. The description of grandeur and power of these verses brings a careful reader to consider who's really in charge of the world. As the book opens, we are confronted with the shallow nature of man's power and pomp. One woman at a party refused a request, and it sent the whole Persian empire into disarray. These are indeed some of the ingredients God tends to use for His providential plan, even the worst wrong actions, behavior, and intentions of sinful men and women. God, a lot of times, throws that into the ingredients of his sovereign sauce. So in, uh, in his boiling anger, Ahasuerus gathers together all his attendants, and they gave Ahasuerus their advice. Don't let this rebellion stand. If word gets out that she refuses you, women are going to break out all over the province. That's exactly what they say. Read the story. Women are going to break out. So... We gotta, we gotta contain this. And so here's their, here's their advice. If it please the king, depose Vashti, let a royal order go out, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never to come before the king, before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. 
Now, it's interesting, a law or edict of the Persians and the Medes. Now, why do they go out of their way to say something like that? Well, the, the thing about the Mede and Persian culture is that once the king issued a decree, it could never be repealed, ever, ever. You'd have to write another law over that one. And actually, that becomes a huge key part in this story, that this, that this kind of overarching governing law, that once a king made a law, it could never be revoked. We see this in Daniel 6, 8. Just real quick, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. So therefore, King Darius signed the document. So it couldn't be re uh, repealed. This rule was typical of Persian decrees. And, and like I said, plays an important part in this story. It's a wonder. Uh, this is the wonder of God's sovereignty working behind the scenes. He's moving and pushing and rearranging events and changing minds until he brings out even the most carnal and pagan settings, a decision that will set his perfect plan in place. And we see that here, and we see it throughout this story. So don't fall into the trap of thinking that God's asleep when it comes to your life or even the life of nations. Or that he's out of touch when it comes to carnal banquets, as if he uh, thinks that those don't go on. Or that he sits in heaven nervous when it comes to the godless rulers and maybe even foolish presidents that we've had for a whole generation who make unfair, rash, stupid decisions. Mark it down as permanent ink. God is always at work. But his ways are so different than ours that we quickly jump to fallacious conclusions and either react rashly or we get paralyzed in fear and panic. So let's not be those. Amen? All right. So the queen's deposed. Here we go, Esther 2. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus was abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. This actually chapter begins in the sixth year of the reign of Ahasuerus, and this is about three years after Vashti's deposed. So the king has been, uh, while the king wallowing around, he made the decree. So it's like, why are we feeling sorry for him? But anyway, uh, he made his own bed, right? But so this is about three years after this decree. And so his advisors, he's probably walking around pretty depressed, you know? He went from like booze fest to Prozac fest. I mean, it's just kind of like, man, I need some help. Sorry. I, I, okay. I know. I'm not trying to stigmatize antidepressants. Anyway, praise God. Okay. Need to think through before it leaves the mouth. Anyway. Okay. So let's go on. Verse 3. Uh, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces. This is his attendants again, giving him advice. Appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susan, the citadel, under custody of Haggai and the, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women who pleases the, the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. AKA, bro, that's a great idea. Uh, so this idea of his advisors is, man, you got 127 provinces to 
uh, you know, match.com on. And so why don't you send out your advisors and get these virgins and we'll bring them to you. And um, you get to kind of cull through them and pick one. And to him, that was a great idea. Uh, that they may gather these beautiful young women. There'd be, that'd be a large number. Josephus actually writes about this. The famous Jewish historian tells us that there's many as 400 women that showed up uh, that in, was involved in this Persian beauty pageant. Over 400. There's no mention that the parents were ever asked or given the chance to refuse. Which is another aspect of the story. So, verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, who for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. When her father and her mother died, Mordecai took after her as his own daughter. So Esther, Hadassah is her Jewish name. Esther is her Persian name. It means star. So she's the diva of the story. And uh, her uh, parents were no longer alive. The author kind of goes to great lengths to emphasize that Esther is an orphan and Mordecai is her uncle who takes her under her, his wing. So let's go on. Verse 8, So when the king's order uh, and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. It goes on and says, The, women, the young, women, young woman, Esther, pleased him, this eunuch, that's over them, and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Now, a young woman was uh, this, this pleased, this head eunuch, that he gained, she gained so much favor, she's given seven attendants, all the cosmetics that she could need, all the best food, and... He kind of like puts her at the front of the line. He assigned, yeah, so verse 10. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. So Mordecai, there was a general sense that we'll see later on in the story, but there's a general sense of anti-Jewishness, anti-Semitism, and and uh, it was throughout the kind of the Persian Empire. But Mordecai advises Esther, don't let the king know or anybody in the palace that you're Jewish. Okay, just keep that to yourself. They don't need to know that. That will become a liability to you than a blessing. So verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into, the king, into King Hazarus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women... Since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. 
In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in uh, to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So let's check this out. During the year before uh, each young woman's turn to go into Hazaras, 12 months of beauty treatments, tremendous amount, extremely costly. Um, now, that's just in preparation. Now, now, they said in that term, second harem. So here's the flow of how this would go. You would probably get procured, because you're beautiful, brought to the citadel. You would be given kind of head over this, this eunuch that is in charge of you, and then they beautify you. Then you have one night with the king. This is the setup. You get to sleep. The king is going to sleep with you for one night. Then, after he sleeps with you, you go to the second harem. That's where all the concubines are, and you are there forever unless the king calls you back because you can't get married after the king does what he wants to do with you. Do you see what's on the line for these 400 women? Their whole future it's kind of on the line of this call, just to feel the tension a little bit there. All right, verse 15. When the turn came for Esther and the daughters of Abihail, Abihail the, doc, uh, the uncle of Mordecai who had been taken her as his own daughter, to go to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king eunuch who was in charge, advised now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her, and then when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, so when she goes in, verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the queen gave a great feast to all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Man, they gave, he gave a great feast. This is, this is kind of also a book of feasts. There's five total. This is the second of five. They, show, they, they, they have another feast. So this now kind of sets up our story a hot-headed king with lackey advisors, a deposed queen, a righteous Jew, and an orphaned niece who was in obscurity and is now queen over the most powerful, largest empire the world has ever seen. So, we're going to get into, we haven't even met the primary antagonist to this story, but as we kind of land, I just want to pull out one thing. Esther spent 12, 12, let me find my space. Um, there we go. Esther took 12 months of beauty treatments to see the king for one night. What are you doing to prepare for the works and calling God wants you to walk in? Right? So what are you preparing for? God is preparing works and plans that he has planned in advance for you to walk in. We see in Ephesians 10, 2.10, one of my favorites. 
For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You were made in the image of God. You were made with a purpose from him. So what are you preparing for, for the works that God made you for? Are you part, and what is like, well, what does that mean, Dave? Like, what do you mean preparing? Well, it's as if there's these works that God has for you to walk in, and in order for you to walk him in the way that he's designed you for, I've got to be prepared to walk in them fully. I miss them. I won't even see them. Or I'll bring half of me. I'll bring kind of like part of me and not really be what God wants it to be. And so with that, i got to take serious. I'm preparing. I'm preparing to walk in the works that God has for me. And as a life of a disciple, that's like every day. Until you go meet your maker. That's like, man, every day is a day I can prepare to be more like him. I can know his word more. Today is a day that I can know his spirit more, that I can hear his voice and receive from him. Today's a day that I can know more about relationships. And as God adds me to community, I can begin learning how to have a conflict with somebody and not immediately run away. That I can learn how to like talk with someone. Hey, you think differently than I do. Hey, actually, let's maybe have a conversation about that rather than uh, doing what our culture is training us to do, which is just immediately emotionally react. Let's be the people of God that trains people how to relate to one another in a healthy way. Amen? You might have a specific calling, but you've been hesitating. You've been riding the bench. You haven't been preparing. You know it's there. You know God has a plan, but it's just been kind of hovering and you haven't been doing anything. Well, now's the time to get intentional. Raise your expectations about God, what God wants to do through your life. Again, we think that because we don't have all the bells and whistles to like make it successful, that God's not going to make it fruitful. Let me tell you that those are the lenses of the world and not the lenses of the kingdom of God. You in the hands of an almighty God can do quite amazing things. So, part of that training, you know, that's one of the reasons why we have classes twice a year, so that we can kind of go beyond the Sunday, go beyond kind of our life group, life on life, daily living, and actually get trained in a little deeper way to see ways that we haven't seen before. Because that's, that's part of the downside is we've been probably uh, trained on kind of the juice of the world for so long that it's sometimes hard to suckle off this milk, but it's like, God, I know that this milk is going to feed my soul. God, I know that your Holy Spirit is going to give me what my heart cries and aches out for. Amen? So if you haven't signed up for one of those classes, like, man, get trained, get prepared. That's part of it. Okay? So let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you, God, for your word, and thank you for the story of Esther. God, that even among the pomp of this young, of this king, God, you brought him to his knees. And Father, you also brought out of obscurity this young Jewish woman that God, you gave favor on, and now she's queen. And Lord, we're going to see, God, in these next couple weeks, God, the sovereign reason why you put her in this position. Because God, it's for a purpose. 
And so, Lord, we ask that, Lord, even this week, God, that you would open up our eyes to what we're preparing for. God, are we preparing to walk in the works that you've made us for? Or are we getting distracted just like the rest of the world? God, I pray that you would put a, just a steel rod in, in our backbone to say, God, we're going to be about your purposes and as long as we got breath in our lungs. God, we're going to be about you and about your kingdom. So, Lord, help us this week. Be your church and bring life to others because, God, you've blessed us to be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we hope this message has inspired you and challenged you to be the man or woman he's called you to be now and to see his kingdom grow in every area and arena of life. God is with you more than you know. For more information about our community here in Kansas City, please visit us online at citylifekc.org and we'll see you next time on the City Life Podcast.